Morning, church family. How are we doing this morning? Are we doing well? It's good to hear. Uh, if, if you're new here, like Brother Mike said earlier, we are so glad and happy to have you. And also, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there's going to be a, hard black, a hardback black copy underneath the chair in front of you. That's going to be our gift to you this morning. If you don't have a Bible, take that, please. Take it home and read it. Make that your new best friend. Make that a daily part of your life. I'm so thankful to be able to be up here and share the Word of God with you guys, but I think the only way that this message is going to go well is if we set some ground rules and expectations. As you can see, I am not as nicely dressed as Brother Brian. I don't have any authentic garb from the mission field. Uh, but like Brother Brian, I will tell you, I really wish we had a 21st century cup holder right here because I get so thirsty when I'm up here. Today, the, the reason is not because I don't have them or because I hate them. Um, one is true, one is false. It's because my beard would cover half anyway, so what's the point? <laughs> but the expectation I want to set is that while I too am also a bibliophile, I didn't bring a stack of books to give away, so I'm sorry. <laughs> and now that we've established some ground rules, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. We are going to be in Psalms 78, verses 1 through 11. And we've got the psalmist Asaph, this divine messenger from the Lord, and he's using the history of Israel as a warning. Kids, just know that your parents sometimes use stories of you when you were younger as a warning to other parents. It's true because of the way you've maybe acted in the grocery store or maybe when you act as let us all take heed now and realize that while this is a text and a message aimed at the heart of each and every one of you that are parents in this room, this is not a text that is aimed only at the heart of every parent in this room. Don't misunderstand me. Regardless of how many kids you have at home, whether you have no kids yet or maybe you never will, the psalmist Asaph preached this word to the people, regardless of how many rugrats they had crawling around their tents. This is a message for all of us because regardless of how many kids we have, our influence is no less real. Our obligations to fulfill the commands of Scripture are no less relevant, regardless of how many kids we have. To give you a little bit more weight behind how I know that to be true personally. Some of you know this already about me, but others of you have no clue who I, man, who I am. Put it this way. At the age of 16, I was homeless and lost in my sin. My biological mother was in Texas. My biological father was upstate doing hard time. The guy who raised me, my dad, kicked me out and moved to Florida with my sister. And here I am. Ta-da! But it's not because of anything I did. I, I clearly should be the last guy up here, but I will tell you what I know to be true because this book can in your life to pour the gospel into your heart and into your life. And the people who have been most influential in my life don't share my last name. We don't share blood. But some of the most influential men and women in my life, some of you are in this room, and I'm thankful for you. So just know that what we hear and read about today is something that we are all called to because I don't know which one of you are going to be able to pour the gospel into someone who might be in a situation just like me, who needs to hear the gospel from you. So let's open up our Bibles if you're not there already. We're going to take a look at the first 11 verses in Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. 
things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation." a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this day and for your people who are gathered in your name. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us our sin this morning and that you would encourage us to be obedient. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all of the things we think and do and say this day and all the rest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cormac McCarthy's The Road has often been described as a love story between father and son, and really nothing could better describe it. Uh, men, if you haven't read the book, I recommend you read it. And men, if you have children, read it twice. And see, here's how the story goes. There's this, there's this sick father and this son in the post-apocalyptic, dreary, ashen, desolate, grid-down scenario kind of America. And they're, they're pushing along the shopping cart full of supplies. And they're constantly scavenging for their next meal. And they're always on the lookout for bad guys. This marauding band of villains who are in their jerry-rigged, diesel-run vehicles just seeking whom they can devour. And, and this father and this son, they've only got each other. And the father realizes the, the pressing weight of his illness, and he knows he's not going to be around much longer to protect his son and teach him the ways of life. Throughout the story, this father experiences such soul-crushing anguish and and one time, and probably the darkest moment of the book that I, I can't not read or, or I can't read and not cry is he actually contemplates taking a boulder and smashing in his son's skull to prevent him from being raped and eaten by the depraved barbarians in the land. And so the man takes life moment after life moment after life moment to show his kids how to carry the fire, how to live an honorable life. At the same time, throughout this experience, the father it gets so depressed and so worried about what's going to happen when he's not around. But in the boy's sweetness and his innocence, he finds strength and the hope to continue on. As their journey continues, the father ends up having a conversation with the son, and he asks his father, Daddy, are we the good guy? And the boy asks, Daddy, will we ever eat people? And the father says, no, of course not. Why, Daddy? Is it, is it because we're the good guys? Is, is it because we're carrying the fire? Yes, son, it is. You see, again, the father has taken every opportunity he could possibly find and made sure to teach his son the mental aptitudes and the physical skills to survive this post-apocalyptic world. And yet, for many Christian parents, 
we do little more than take our kids to church on a Sunday morning to leave our spiritual legacy behind. What we have to do is face the reality that this truthful text in Psalm 78 was a warning because of the prior generations of Israel. And this is something that we need to listen to today. Because parents sometimes forget to realize the gravity of the situation and we forget to realize that there are perilous times coming if we shirk our duties as authority figures and gospel bearers to share the love of Christ with our children and those we have influence over. We see very clearly that God commands us to teach the coming generation his ways. But why? Well, in verse 7, you see that we should teach so that they will place their hope and trust in him. Verse 7, we see that we should teach so they will place their hope and trust in him. Israel is no stranger to conflict. Uh, these brothers and sisters, these spiritual forebears of ours, they, they've faced attackers and oppressors, over 400 years of slavery, and yet they've seen the God of Jacob deliver them time and again. He's freed them from slavery. They went through and they observed all the plagues and how that worked out for the Egyptians. They watched as God led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They watched as God parted the Red Sea for them. They watched as God provided their every need, as God gave them the bread of angels, the manna from heaven. We saw and we learned how God rained down meat from the skies. And in Miss Molly's class on Wednesday, she told the kids that it was about three foot high for about a 10 mile radius. Even after people complained that manna from heaven wasn't good enough, they wanted meat. And all of these powerful deeds that we see from God time and again throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of Israel as a nation and a people chosen by God, prove to us, just like it should have proven to them, that God is worthy of our hope and trust being placed in Him. He is worthy. And when we have that hope in God, that gives us confidence in the storm. That gives us comfort when life shows itself to be stacked against us. It gives us a chance to overcome fear and anxiety. Having hope in God doesn't mean that you're not scared. It means that you know that God is greater than your scaredness, that of your fear, of the things that make you tremble. Hope is what gets us through life's lowest valleys. In fact, hope is what got Andy through all those years when he was wrongfully convicted and illegally held in prison in Shawshank. 25 years is a long time to be digging away at a prison wall with a tool slightly bigger than a fork. And yet, that's what got Andy through. Each day brought that man a little bit closer to freedom. And most prisoners with a life sentence would have very, become very comfortable with their fate because it was signed, sealed, and delivered. I'm here for life, but not Andy. He had hope because he had his tunnel. Hidden away behind that poster, some of you know the poster, and each day brought him one day closer to freedom. And that hope and that confidence that one day he would be free again separated him from the rest of the prisoners. It kept him from lapsing into depression. How much more can a child of God have a renewed sense of hope because we serve a sovereign king? We serve a God who has shown himself in the word to be faithful. And don't even just take the Bible's word for it that God has done these things in the past. You know what God has delivered you from already. Do the unthinkable. But you know, Andy had the hope. 
And that's what kept him going. But you know, your kids often face a different reality. Your kids tell me on a regular basis on Wednesdays, Sunday mornings, about the nasty kids in the neighborhood and the bullies at school. And if I had more time to spend with the teens, I'm sure their, their stories wouldn't be that different. I've cried with some of you over the phone as we've prayed for your kids who've got bullies. And some of you may be a little bit more callous, you're a little bit more old school, and you think, oh, Jason, psh, that's nothing. It toughens kids up. It builds character because out there in the real world, no one's going to be there to save these little snowflakes. And I get that. I get that way of thinking, but you don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like. You see, when we were kids, when someone dumped a, a bowl of food on our head or tripped us in the hallway or depants us on stage at the recital, no one popped out a cell phone in high-def 1080p recording our misfortunes for the world to see on YouTube. And yet that's the reality a lot of your kids live in. Every messed up, every mistake, every trap set by evil kids. And don't get me wrong, yes, kids are evil. I know some of you are like, wow, Kidman guy said kids are evil. Yeah, but aren't we all? They just are a little bit less ashamed about it. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said that a Christian's hope isn't an escape or wishful thinking, but something that a Christian is meant to do. Hope in God reorients our minds about our circumstances and gives us the confidence that he is in control. Paul tells the Romans in 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Our kids need hope. Not just because of the bullies they deal with, but because some of you have already started plotting out your kids' collegiate career before they were out of diapers. I mean, I, I, I praise you, Mom and Dad, more power to you for thinking that far in advance. But what's that doing to our kids? Academic stress is at an all-time high, and then when you add to that peer pressures and social media, what are we doing? Our kids are looking at all these airbrushed celebrities with six-pack abs, living on vacation every day of the week, and they're always successful, and, and we're just not having the conversations with our kids to help them realize this is fake. Our kids don't realize that everyone posts a highlight reel because why? Hashtag best life now. This is garbage, and this is the stuff that wants to rob our kids of hope and joy. We have to teach them so that they put their hope and trust in God. They can't put it in social media. Our kids are constantly asking themselves, Mommy, Daddy, Grandma, Grandpa, am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I fast enough for you to love me? Am I worth the likes and followers and retweets? Am I worthy? Am I good enough? Am I enough to be loved? Sad reality is, a lot of us ask the same questions. Did you know that suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., as the latest numbers I could find in 2017? And that for the ages of 10 to 34, many of you in this room, 10 to 34, it is the second leading cause of death. In 2017 alone, over 47,000 people took their own life. It's twice as many as there were homicides, and we live close to Flint, come on. What is wrong? Now we know what's wrong, right? Like, we know the answer. The answer is sin. We get that. But how do we combat sin? We obey the scriptures when it says, teach the next generation so that they will place their hope in him. 
But not only that, we're also commanded to teach so they will not be rebellious and stubborn. You see that again in verse 8. Teach so that they will not be rebellious and stubborn. Asaph puts Israel on blast. We see that after verse 11, he just lists out their misdoings and their sin. They had this opportunity. Failed. They had this opportunity. They failed. They had this opportunity. They failed God again. Golden calf worship, idolatry, uh, wrong sexual relationships, general rebellion and a stubborn attitude. This is what the people of God were marked by. And it seemed like their attitudes and their actions always put them on an opposing ground from God. And let's be very clear about that. When we are in our rebellion and our sin, we are on opposing ground from God. And I know we don't like to think about God this way, but the Bible makes it very, very clear. If you are on an opposing ground with God, you are toast. He will light you up. He will throttle you because God is furious at your sin. And the Bible highlights this for us very clearly in Numbers chapter 16. Some of you might know the reference. This is the story of Korah's rebellion. So what we have here in a very short, tight summation of the story, we've got Korah and 249 other co-conspirators, and they're going up against Moses, the man of God, the voice of God to the people. Apparently, they don't think that it's too cool that he's in charge and gets to call all the shots. Little do they realize, obviously, that it's not Moses calling the shots, but it's been God all along. So God sent fire from heaven to destroy them. But not just them, their families and everything they owned, and God actually opened up the ground to swallow them up. That's how seriously God takes sin. Fire from heaven, guys. That'd be pretty cool to see, right? As long as it wasn't us, somebody else. Fire from heaven, an earthquake to open up and swallow the bad kids. And in the wake of that, just one day later, we've got a group of Israelites who are a little ticked off at God. They don't like the way God handled that situation. God tells Moses, hey man, step back real quick. Just come over here. I, I got this. Just sit back real quick. And then God sent a plague. 14,700 men got the plague that day because they disagreed with the way God handled that decision, with that situation. Rebellion and stubbornness is terrible. It is sin. We can, we can maybe just make a pass and you know, get, tell our, ourselves that our, our kids aren't as rebellious as, as maybe somebody else's kids. It's just a phase. They're teenagers. They're going to go through this. Everybody has these rebellious teenagers. I'm just gonna, I don't want to harp on them. I don't want to uh, cause more conflict in the home. I'm just going to kind of give them their space. But that's not what God did. He leaned into that sin and he took corrective action. Someone tells the story of a rebellious son and a father. No, it wasn't me. Stop asking questions over there. Could have been me. Somebody tells the story of this rebellious son, and he is making his parents' life miserable with all of his actions and his deeds and just generally being a pain in the neck. And it gets to the point so bad that mom and dad are at their wit's end, and they don't know what they're going to do next. So the dad, in his last-ditch attempt to try to knock some sense into his son, he tells his son, I'm going to put a wooden post out in the front yard. And every time you sin and rebel, I'm going to drive a big nail in it. But every time you obey, I'm going to pop one out. And you could probably imagine what that young, probably teenage son thought in his head. Challenge accepted. I'll show dad. I got this. 
And he did everything in his power to fill that with nails. It only took about two months' time. But around that same time, the son really started to feel the genuine weight of his sin. And guilt started to eat away at his conscience. So he started to obey. And he really had a change of heart. He turned the page and his mom and dad noticed. And so one after one, dad popped those nails out. And when that nail, the final nail finally came out, the son looked at the, the post and he started to weep bitterly. And the, son, and the son says, I could get rid of all the nails, but I can't get rid of all the holes. When we dig in our heels when we resist the urge to obey the Spirit's conviction in our heart, when we ignore scriptures that are inconvenient to obey, we're essentially shaking our fist at God and saying, how dare you try to tell me how to live my life? How dare you think you know me better than I know myself? I got this, man. You just chill over there. I got this. I know what's best for me and mine. But brothers and sisters, we fool ourselves if we think we make good gods. But when we remember God's goodness, when we remember his deeds, when we remember the works he's done in our own midst, not just the, the crazy awesome stuff written about in the Bible, but the stuff, the very real miracles we've seen in this church, whether it be healing or an answer to prayer uh, for financial things or getting a job, we've seen the power of God. We're reminded of his goodness and his love. And so when we're confronted with sin, and oh man, oh man, doesn't Satan know how to make sin look good? It always looks so attractive and so sweet. And when you add to that the fact that he'll tell me that no one else is going to know, especially none of you guys because you don't know where I work, except for Ethan, we get that false sense of security that this is okay. And remember the goodness of God and be like, you know what? I see what you're doing, Satan. I get that. But God's way is better. I get it might take twice as long for me to get that promotion. I understand that it might take a little bit more time to win over some friends. But God's way is better than my way. God's way is better than your way. And isn't that exactly what we want for our kids? We don't want our kids to see that thing that promises them true freedom and true independence when you're not looking. We want our kids to be able to stop and go, hang on a minute. Mom and Dad warned me about this. And God's way is better. So God commands us to pass the torch by teaching the next generation his ways so that they'll place their trust in him, place their hope in him, and not be rebellious. But we're also commanded to teach so they will remain faithful to the Lord. It's an interesting word to describe our relationship with God. Such wretched sinners as we are, how are we to be faithful to God? What does that even mean to be faithful some of you are already thinking it means to hold your ground, stand firm. Some of you mean uh, know that it means to stay the course. Regardless of the outside circumstances, I'm going to be devoted to this one cause. Some of you, your minds immediately went to the marriage covenant you have if you're married or soon to be married. When you are faithful to someone, you are pledging that despite all obstacles, you're to run away, you are going to stand firm in your love and devotion and service to another. We're faithful to God when we spend time in the Word. 
We are faithful to God when we spend time in prayer. We are faithful to God when we spend time with the people. We are faithful to God when we prioritize the gathering of the saints instead of organizing our entire monthly calendar according to our six-year-old soccer team. We are faithful to God when we witness to our neighbors, even though it's awkward. We're faithful to God when we hold firm to the truths of Scripture, even though it might cost us a promotion, even though we might lose some friends. It might mean you're not going to be homecoming king, guys, because you're going to end up being friends with some of the people who everyone else thinks are losers because they smell bad, because they don't have the right brand of shoes, because they're always late. And when mom and dad drop them off, it's a half a mile away because the car is so much a jalopy that they just can't even bear to be seen with their parents. But when we are living out the gospel in our lives, when we are faithful to God in everything that that entails, it's going to cost us. Now listen, what happened to Israel? Because obviously Asaph is talking about this particular thing for a reason. And what happened with Israel is in one breath they acknowledge that God is so good and so powerful that he could bring forth water from a rock. And yet, in the very same breath, they have this backhanded compliment, this, this sarcasm to say, but can God set a table in the wilderness? Can God actually, can God actually? Listen, guys, and if you actually ever start thinking that or believing that, or you hear someone else say, can God actually? Just know you're already wrong. Can God actually feed us and take care of our sustenance? Verse 22, Asaph tells us that God's wrath was full and a fire was kindled against Israel because they didn't trust in his power and his saving ability. But our faithfulness is going to be rewarded. You see, what God's people failed to do in the times of Israel, like we're reading about this morning, is to cling hold to the gospel truth that God is good, and that God is powerful, and that God is capable. But instead, they continued to trust on their own selves for their own comfort and their own provisions. When the tough times came, they wavered in their allegiance to God. Spurgeon once said, If our faith be worth anything, it will stand the test. It is a poor faith which can only trust in God when friends are true, the body full of health, and the business profitable. But that is true faith which holds by the Lord's faithfulness when friends are gone, when the body is sick, when spirits are depressed, and the light of our Father's countenance is hidden. In 1555, as she sought to establish the Catholic Church in England, Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary, arranged for John Philpot to be executed. He was one of the most well-known Protestant ministers of the time. Think of him as like John MacArthur or Matt Chandler back then. And this is the guy who is making waves because of being obedient to the Lord. And instead of freaking out, and despairing, he said, God, grant me strength in a joyful resurrection. I am ready. Not just that, but this brother actually walked to the place of execution instead of being dragged, kicking, and screaming. And once he got to the stake that he would be burned at, he bowed down and kissed it. This is faithfulness. When life is hard, when the deck seems stacked against you, when you can't catch a break to save your life, bless you. That is faithfulness. You can't just be a Fairweather fan. 
And we're in Michigan. We have the Lions. We ought to know what it's going to take to be faithful to a lost cause. And many of you have no problem putting the silly stickers on or sharing your things on Facebook, changing your Facebook frame. Some of you guys and girls have no problems putting on jerseys for the worst team in the world. I don't understand you. But how much more can we remain faithful to the Lord in good times and bad? God's never going to go 0-16, brothers. That's just not going to happen. You're going to go 0-16 every day of the week. And he loves you anyway. He's your biggest fan. Now, it's easy for us to make a molehill, sorry, a mountain out of a molehill when we think about our circumstances. I know I'm guilty of it. Check engine light comes on. Oh, my goodness! You get that report card sent home from the teachers, right, kids? If you're homeschooled, uh-oh. Wait till Dad sees the report card. Oh, no. You get the news from the doctor. And we immediately lose our faith in God just for a slight moment because all of a sudden we realize we have zero control. And yet, for some reason, up until this point, we thought we did. You see, our kids, they're never going to be walked to a stake like John Philpott. They're, they're not going to have the same sort of consequences as prior generations had for having faith in God. But God wants them to know that regardless of how challenging their faithful walk is going to be, that he is worth it. He is worth every trial. He is worth every sacrifice because he is a good and perfect and holy God, and he is good all the time. He is good all the time. What parent ha hasn't sat beside their kid who's very ill, beside the bedside of a kid who is severely ill and thought and cajoled and prayed and wrestled and wrangled with God and said, if he needs my lungs to breathe, they're his. What parent hasn't said, Lord, if she needs my heart to keep going, take it from me now. Now, I haven't been a parent for a long time, but I remember a message I heard probably 10 to 12 years ago, and the brother had said, it's a very easy thing to say, I would die for my kids. I would hope so. You're a parent. But that's an easy thing to say. That's way easy to say that. And a lot of us truly, surely would if the moment, if the moment came right now, parents are gone, kids are still alive because that's just who we are. Even as sinners who are lost, they would say that. But how many of us would, while we are still alive, live for our kids? How many of us are living so that we could pour the gospel truth into their life? How many of us are living so that they can see the truths of Scripture and have our spiritual heritage? How many of us are actively living in such a way that we would be able to pass on to them the spiritual legacy that the God of this Bible, my God, is worth everything you've seen mommy and daddy go through? And I would gladly go through it twice, even if it cost me everything that I have and everything that I am. And, and baby girl, baby boy, I want for you to know this God and love this God. And that's not going to be easy, guys. And girls, that's not going to be easy. You're going to be late to work sometimes because you're going to be parenting. You're going to miss some, some chances for happy hour with the boys and girls after work because you're going to be parenting. You might miss practice sometimes, kids, because your parents are going to be pouring their lives into you. Maybe the Spirit's working in you right now and you're starting to feel the, the weight of your parenting choices. Maybe some of you who aren't parents or aren't parents yet, or your kids are already grown, maybe you're feeling guilty. 
because of the way we've raised our kids, the way we've maybe dropped the ball reaching the next generation. Some of us in this room haven't even picked up the ball and stepped into the arena. Some of you have never held family devotions. And some of you have, but it's been six to eight months. Some of you are wishing that your kids were small enough to hold, like baby Soren, and just be able to whisper gospel truths into his life. And even as they got a little bit older, as long as you can still hold them, chances are they're going to believe everything you say. Some of you in this room came here today, this morning, and your soul was crushed and defeated because you are so tired of fighting with your older kids about the gospel and about the truthfulness of Scripture. You're already at the end of your rope, and you are not ready for another 12 rounds of heated debate with your kids. Some of you are ready to throw in the towel, I know. We've talked about it a little bit, and I've prayed for you, prayed for me when my dark moments as well. Some of us are kicking ourselves because we're seeing our kids now struggle with the same things that we've struggled with for years because we didn't have the courage to tell them that we're sinners too. And we never showed them the truth of the gospel, that there is victory in Jesus. Some of you in this room are scared to bring up gospel conversations with your kids or your coworkers or anyone you have influence over because you know when they get fed up, they're going to call you a hypocrite. And it hurts, right? Because on some level, we know it's true. How are you feeling, brothers and sisters? Are you feeling like an Israelite this morning? I know I am. Pastor Daniel tells us all the time that when he's up here, he's preaching to himself first. This has hit me time and again over the past several months. But you're not alone because no one in this room has got it all figured out. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you're a big sinner and you've dropped the ball as a parent or as a Christian for reaching the next generation. But if I were to ask you that, you would see a sea of hands go up because no one here has it all figured out. And the implications are scary, right? Like, I know this. This is scary stuff we're talking about here. Because if we acknowledge that our laziness or our apathy or our indecisiveness has caused us to drop the ball or never begin to pick it up to reach the next generation, that they've got a lifetime of hurt and pain and sorrow ahead of them. Maybe not as bad as the Israelites had back in Psalm 78, where later on we would go on to read that God put them to the sword. And listen, maybe our kids in the next generation aren't going to have it as bad as the father and the son in the road. But we have to know that if we're not reaching the next generation, that they are doomed for a life of misery, right? How could it not be? Because a life that's spent chasing things that are not of the Lord is a life spent pursuing all the wrong things. It's foolishness. Now, when I tell you this, there's an uncomfortable truth here, right? That our rebellion, our own stubbornness, our own lack of faithfulness to the Lord has caused this on our kids and our grandkids in the next generation we realize that we're the Israelites here. We're that stiff next generation, deserving to be put to the sword. But as our discomfort grows, so too does our knowledge that God's grace is bigger than all of our sin. But how do we know this? Listen, don't just take my word for it. Don't just think because somebody let me up here with a Bible doesn't mean that I know what I'm talking about. You've got to find it in Scripture. 
But we know this. We know that God's grace is bigger than all of our sin because the story doesn't end there. I read for us 11 verses, but there are so many more in this chapter. In verse 70, we read of God's inexhaustible grace for his people despite all of their wickedness. It says, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. God had every right to blot out the entire nation, but he made good on his covenant promise. He held back for himself a remnant, and we see David, but that only points us to the day that the greater David would come. The day that Jesus Christ would enter humanity, he lived a life we couldn't live to pay a debt we couldn't pay. And on that day on the cross, he won. You see, because we got forgiveness through his redemptive work on the cross. We have an opportunity, brothers and sisters, in the power of Christ to start anew today. From here on out, starting on the car ride home, you can be intentional about how you're reaching the next generation. Maybe you need to be teaching on Wednesday. Maybe you need to be teaching a Sunday school class. I can't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart right now. I'm coming up in the fall and the winter. Some of you are already needing to be thinking about how you're going to get jumped in and plugged in for backyard Bible clubs next year. But I know that all of us should be thinking right now, how am I shepherding my children? How am I reaching the next generation that God has entrusted to me? And then again, like I said at the beginning of this, it doesn't matter if we have kids right now. We've got influence. If you're a teacher, you've got a captive audience of 20 to 30 kids. If you're a grandma or an aunt or an uncle, if you're a neighbor and there are kids in the neighborhood, you have an opportunity to wield your influence for good, for the gospel. And our community and our church and our souls are going to be better because we're being obedient to Scripture. Now, I can't keep going unless I say this. There are consequences for our sin. But God is our God throughout all of that. My prayer for us is that we would realize that God's grace is sufficient for us, that because of Jesus and his power, we can have a clean slate today and be intentional about reaching the next generation. My prayer for us this morning is that as we reach the next generation, as we pass the torch to help them carry the fire, that others would be able to see that flame and it would burn so brightly that others could see that light from afar and be able to come and warm themselves by it. I hope that through all of this, you would powerfully believe these truths. I pray for us that we would be forgiven for dropping the ball and being indifferent. I pray that God would help us to trust in him, that we would be able to be used by him, that we would have a desire to be used by him, even if it's outside of our comfort zone. I pray that our love for him would drive out the affections for the world so that we could be obedient and faithful as God commands us here in Psalm 78. Let's pray. Our Heavenly